from Belshazzar in the year 551 B.C. Daniel was in Babylon, but in his vision, he sees himself in Susa, which at the time of the vision was a little insignificant town about 150 miles east of Babylon. The reason he is there is because that city would soon become the capital city of the next world empire. And Daniel sees that depicted in his vision in verses 3 and 4 as a ram who had two large horns, one longer than the other, and the longest one came up last. And this ram butted its way west and south and north, conquering all beasts and taking over the world. And in verse 20, Daniel is told that this ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then in verses 5 to 8, he sees a goat coming from the west. It's traveling so fast that it's not even touching the ground. It has a big horn between its eyes. It, in anger, rushes at the ram, shatters its horns, throws it to the ground, and tramples on him. And in verse 21, Daniel is told that this goat is Greece and that the big horn is its first king. Now, 12 years after Daniel's vision, the Medo-Persian Empire came like that ram and conquered the known world. Nearly 200 years later, Greece came from the west under their first king, Alexander the Great. He raced across the known world, trampling down the Medo-Persian Empire and everybody else until he finally ran out of kingdoms to conquer. And just when he was at his strongest point, verse 8 says, this horn was broken and four horns came up in its place. Alexander died at the height of his power and left the kingdom to four of his generals. Which brings us to our passage this morning, beginning in verse 9. Now in verses 3 to 8, we saw the big horn, Alexander the Great. Now we're going to see the small horn in verses 9 to 14. Verse 9 says, And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. Out of one of them. Out of one of who? Well, out of the four horns in verse 8. Alexander divided his kingdom among Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. It's out of one of those four that this little horn comes along. Now, who is this? Well, some Bible teachers have assumed that this is the Antichrist. And the reasoning for that is that the little horn in chapter 7 was the Antichrist. Therefore, the little horn in chapter 8 must be the Antichrist because why would God put two little horns so close together unless they're the same guy. But if we look carefully, we will find out that they're very different because in chapter 7, it says that that little horn came up among the ten horns on the fourth beast. Now, if you haven't been with us, you're probably shaking your head at this point. But if you've been with us, you'll remember that the fourth beast is the fourth major world kingdom, which is Rome. So in chapter 7, the little horn comes up among the ten king confederacy of Rome. In chapter 8, this little horn comes out of one of the four horns of the goat, which is Greeks. So the little horn in chapter 7 comes out of Rome. The little horn in chapter 8 comes out of Greeks. So they're not the same horn. You say, well, then why are they both depicted as little horns? Well, we know from our study that horns represent what? Kings. And they're both kings. But I think there's another reason, and I think it's more important, and that is they're both depicted as little horns because one prefigures the other. I think that this little horn that rises up at the end of the Grecian Empire pictures for us 
the little horn who's going to rise up at the end of the Roman Empire or in that future revived Roman Empire, which is the Antichrist. So who is this small horn? Well, when we look back at the history of those four kings who divided up the Greek Empire, we find a rather interesting individual. The eighth king in the Seleucid Kingdom was a fellow by the name of Antiochus IV. Now, unless you're a student of Jewish history, you may not have heard of him. He came along about 150 years after Alexander the Great, and he reigned from 175 to 164 B.C. He wasn't actually supposed to be king. Actually, his father was king, and his older brother became king. His older brother was murdered, and the heir to the throne was his brother's son or his nephew. But he was taken captive into Rome, and at that point, Antiochus usurped the throne, which may be why he's described here at his beginning as small, because he wasn't even supposed to be on the throne. But if you'll notice, it says he starts small and he grew exceedingly great. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the illustrious one. And we're told here also in verse 9, that he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. He grew toward the south, overcoming Egypt. He grew toward the east, overcoming Mesopotamia. And he grew toward the beautiful land, which would be what? Palestine. It's interesting, when, when, when you look at the history of these kings, Palestine was under the control of the Ptolemies in Egypt up until the time of Antiochus' father. And around 200 B.C., he entertained a series of battles with Egypt and took over Palestine. So when Antiochus became king, he was actually controlling Palestine. He was the king of Israel. But not only did this horn grow outward, we also find in verse 10 that it grew upward. It says it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Now, who is the host of heaven? Well, when you look up into heaven, what do you see? Stars. What do stars represent? Well, I think the best explanation for us is over in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. There it says, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who are the stars? They are those who have wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing God and following him. So the stars are the people of God who follow him. Now that's consistent actually in scripture because in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, God said to Abraham, look toward the heavens and count the stars, so shall your descendants be. And in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, he said to Abraham, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. So Daniel sees this little horn, he grows up into heaven, he pulls down some of the stars of heaven, which is Israel, and he tramples on them. Now Israel had seen persecution under Babylon, and to some degree under the Medo-Persians. It wasn't easy under Alexander, but they had never seen anything like Antiochus Epiphanes. He did to them in the second century B.C. on a small scale, what the Antichrist will do to them on a large scale in that future day of the tribulation. In fact, as we said last week, Alexander 
illustrated to us the power of the Antichrist. This fellow Antiochus is going to illustrate to us the personality of the Antichrist. Now, Antiochus lived in a period known as the intertestamental period, that is, the time between the two testaments. The Old Testament shut down about 400 B.C. The New Testament starts up in A.D., the time of Christ. And during those 400 years, the Bible is silent. God was not speaking. God was not sending any prophets to Israel. It's during that time that we have the Apocrypha being written. Now, the Apocrypha you'll find in the Catholic Bible. It's not biblical. It's not inspired by God, and yet it does give us some interesting insights because there are two books in the Apocrypha called First and Second Maccabees, and they give us historical accounts of that day. And in First Maccabees chapter 1, here's what we read about Antiochus. It says, Antiochus came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses, and surrounded the walls, and they took captive the women and the children. He came to Jerusalem speaking words of peace and then destroyed the place. Other historical accounts tell us he killed 80,000 Jews and sold 40,000 into slavery. Why did he do it? Because he thought this was the way to unite his kingdom. He knew that the only way to incorporate the Jews into his kingdom was to eliminate their religion. And so he set up laws prohibiting any Jewish ceremonies. If you kept the Sabbath or circumcised your children or offered a sacrifice, the penalty was death. When he found out that a mother had circumcised her baby, he killed the child, hung it around her neck, paraded her through the streets of Jerusalem to the highest wall, and there he would throw her headlong over the precipice to her death. One story is told about Antiochus that he confronted a mother who had seven sons who had defied his law. And when he heard about it, he cut out the boy's tongues in front of her and then fried the boys to death on a flat iron one at a time before finally putting her to death. Antiochus was ruthless. The only thing in our time similar to that would be somebody like a Hitler. And it's no surprise to us that the Jews hated him. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the illustrious one. The Jews changed one letter in the Greek word and called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. We read on in verse 11, and it says, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's the host? Israel. So who is the commander of the host? Who is the prince of the host? That's God. So this little horn actually magnifies himself to be equal with God. Archaeologists have discovered over 126 coins dating from that time period. They have on them a picture of Antiochus in these words. Theos Antiochus, Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the illustrious one, is God manifest. What was he saying? I'm God. The very same thing that the Antichrist will say in a future day. We read on in verse 11, and it says, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. 
He will remove the regular sacrifice from God. Antiochus came in, murdered the high priest, and put his own line of priesthood in the city of Jerusalem. They stopped the regular sacrifices. Now, the regular sacrifices would refer to those sacrifices that happened every day. They're recorded in Numbers 28.3. At sunrise and at sunset, every day, they would take a male lamb, one year old, and sacrifice it. Antiochus put a stop to that. But not only that, it says at the end of verse 11, and the place of God's sanctuary was thrown down. In 169 B.C., 1 Maccabees chapter 1 describes how Antiochus came into the temple and he took the golden altar, he took the lampstand that was in the temple because he wanted it for a light for himself. He took the table of showbread, the cups for the drink offerings, the gold censers, the curtains. He literally stripped the temple bare and took it back to Syria to his capital city of Antioch. Two years later, in 167 B.C., he took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar in Jerusalem. And, of course, a pig is an unclean animal. And this was the most offensive thing he could do to the Jews and to God. And then after he killed the pig, he took the blood from that pig, went inside the temple, and sprinkled it all over the inside of the temple. And then they cooked that pig, and we're told that they took the meat and stuffed it into the mouths of the priests. And then he set up an idol to Zeus in the temple of God at Jerusalem. And that incident is later referred to in Daniel chapter 11 as the abomination of desolation. The most abominable act he could think of against God and his people. Verse 12, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. This verse tells us that the host, that is Israel, was given to this little horn. Also tells us the regular sacrifices were given to him. Now who gave them? Well, the commander of the host, the prince of the host gave them. That is, God gave them over to him. And not only that, but it says, it will fling truth to the ground. What's that mean? Well, listen to these words out of 1 Maccabees chapter 1. It says, The books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned them to death. To be caught possessing the Old Testament scriptures was a capital offense. You say, well, why would God let this kind of thing go on? And why would God allow him, as it says at the end of verse 12, to prosper? Well, I think we find the answer to that in the beginning of verse 12. Because there it says, on account of the transgression, God gave the host into his hand. Because of the sins of God's people, Israel, he turned them over into the hands of this Antiochus. And so the purpose was, that God used Antiochus to chastise his people because of their sin, which is the very purpose he's going to have in mind for Antichrist in a future day when he's going to give Israel over into their hands during that tribulation period to chastise them and really purify his people. You say, well, how long would God put up with this? 
Well, look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Now, Daniel gets in a, on a conversation here between two holy ones, which I assume in this context means angels. And one of the angels asked the question that I'm sure was foremost on Daniel's mind, how long is God going to let this go on? And the other angel answers the question, but if you'll notice in verse 14, he directs the answer to Daniel. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, this precise time period has been understand, understood by interpreters two different ways. One is that it refers to 2,300 24-hour days. Taking the expression evening and morning as it's used in Genesis chapter 1, and there was evening and there was morning one day. The other way to take this is as 1150 days composed of 1150 evenings and 1150 mornings. There was one other interpretation, and that is the Seventh-day Adventists took this to be years, measured it from the decree of Cyrus and said that Jesus was going to come back and, and dedicate his temple in 1884. I don't know anybody who holds that position anymore. So the interval would be either 2,300 days, which would be six years, 111 days, or it would be half of that, 1,150, or three years and 55 days. Now, personally, since you asked me, I prefer the latter. And the reason is because of the context. The question is, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And the answer is very specific, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, what happened in the evening and mornings? The regular sacrifices took place. So you're getting a very specific answer here. Essentially, he's saying for 2,300 sacrifices. 1,150 in the evening, 1,150 in the morning. That's how long it's going to last. Now, having said that, I wish that I had some astonishing dates to show you, but I don't. Antiochus offered a swine on the altar and set up the idol of Zeus on the 25th day of the month Chislev in 167 B.C. Judas Maccabees came in and rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month Chislev, which is comparable to our December, in the year 164 B.C. So that's exactly three years between the two events. You say, well, what about the 55 days? Well, historical records are not kept accurately of what happened at that time, but the question didn't have to do with when the abomination of desolation was set up. It had to do with when the sacrifices were stopped. And so I think we have to take the assumption that a month and 25 days earlier, Antiochus stopped the sacrifices, and then at this point he sacrificed the pig three years and 55 days after he stopped the sacrifices. Antiochus rededicated the temple. Do you ever wonder what Hanukkah is all about? It's a Jewish celebration 
of this time when Judas Maccabees came in, rededicated and re-cleansed the temple at Jerusalem. I heard a story about a, a bunch of Jews who were being persecuted behind one of the Iron Curtain countries and one of the Jews was asked by one of his tormentors, what do you think will happen to you and your people if we continue to persecute you? And he said, if you continue to persecute us, I think that we'll probably have a feast. Because Pharaoh tried to destroy us and the result was Passover. Haman attempted to destroy us and the result was a feast of Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy us and the result was a feast of dedication. Just try to destroy us and we'll start another feast. Now there's truth to that because nobody's going to be able to destroy them because they are God's people. The sad part is that when we're celebrating Christmas, they're celebrating this incident that happened in 164 B.C., and they're missing the real celebration, which is their Messiah. Now look at verse 15. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Now, at this point, Daniel has seen the real content of the vision, and yet the vision is not over. He is still standing by the Uli Canal in the city of Susa, and he wants to understand what's going on here, and he says he sees someone who looks like a man in front of him. Verse 16, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Now, this voice is not identified with any person, so I assume... This is the voice of God. And what he does is he identifies who this one who looks like a man is. He says he is Gabriel. And he says, Gabriel, I want you to help Daniel understand this. Now, that seems to be part of Gabriel's job. He, he was the one who seems to communicate a lot of information to people. In uh, Luke 1.19, he's the one who announced to Zacharias that John was going to be born. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, he's the one who announced to Mary that Jesus was going to be born. In fact, what's interesting is there's only two other angels named in Scripture. One is Michael, who in Jude 9 is called the archangel. The other is a fallen angel by the name of Lucifer that we know as Satan or the devil. Verse 17. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Now, apparently when Daniel first sees him, he's a good ways off, and he says he looked like a man. The closer he got, the less he looked like a man, and the more he scared Daniel, and Daniel, out of fright, falls on his face. Similar reaction that John had in Revelation chapter 19 when he saw an angel. says he fell down as well. And it goes on to say, in the rest of verse 17, and he said to me, son of man, Understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. This vision takes you all the way to the end. Now, notice verse 18. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. While the angel's talking to him, he falls asleep. Now, I don't see that as him, you know, deciding he's going to take a little nap. I take it here that he faints. Now, you don't have to worry about him because he's in a vision here. And verse 17 says he's already on the ground, so he didn't fall far. He just kind of conked over, which is kind of an interesting situation. He's awake having a vision, and he's asleep in the vision. If you can figure that out. 
But what I want you to notice is, it says in verse 18 that while Gabriel was speaking, Daniel fell asleep. So Gabriel touches him and stands him up again, and then he repeats his message in verse 19. See, that's something I have to do often. You fall asleep, and I say, did you get that? We'll have to do it again. It's scriptural. So verse 19, he repeats it, and he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Daniel, get this. I'm talking about the appointed time of the end, the final period of indignation. Now, what's the final period of indignation? Indignation means anger. Who's angry? God. Who's God angry at? Well, in this context, he's angry at the sin of his people, Israel. Well, let me ask you this. In those 1150 days ending in 164 B.C., was that the final period of God's indignation on Israel? No. In fact, turn over in your Bible to Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. Here it's speaking about the Antichrist, and it says, Then the king will do as he pleases, that's the Antichrist, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. When the indignation is finished, who's going to be on the scene? The Antichrist. So we know when we come back to Daniel chapter 8 that when Gabriel talks about the final period of the indignation, he's not talking about something that happened in the second century B.C. He's talking about something further down the road. And what he's talking about is that tribulation period that is yet future. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus spoke about the tribulation and he called it the days of vengeance. He called it the days of the wrath to this people. What people? Israel. You see, that will be the nature of the tribulation period in the future. It will be a time of persecution when God will be refining his people. And what I see in this prophecy is that we have a preview in the second century B.C. of the tribulation because there's a period of time there, almost three and a half years, when the people of Israel would be persecuted by a prefigure of the Antichrist named Antiochus. And that prophecy that is fulfilled partially at that point also is going to be fulfilled in the future when the tribulation comes and the antichrist is on the scene and so this prophecy really has a double focus it focuses on antiochus in the second century bc but it also focuses on the antichrist still in the future because gabriel says that's when it will ultimately be fulfilled that's when it's what it's talking about it's talking about the final period of indignation now, we have precedence for that kind of prophecy in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gave a prophecy. He talked about the destruction of Jerusalem in two phases. He talked about the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen 40 years after him, but he used that historical fulfillment to leap also to a future day when there will be a more severe punishment upon Jerusalem in the days of the tribulation. And that's the process we see here. Now, let's see the interpretation. Verse 20. We've already seen this verse. He tells us there that the ram is Medo-Persia. He tells us in verse 21, the goat is Greece. The horn between its eyes is its first king, Alexander the Great. 
He tells us in verse 22 that when that horn is broken, four horns will arise in its place, the four kingdoms that would follow Alexander in the kingdom of Greece. And then in verse 23, he says, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. In the latter period of their rule, in the latter period of whose rule? Well, back in verse 22, he's talking about four kings. Now, some have argued that 175 to 164 B.C. isn't the latter part of the rule of these four kings. But you know, if you study the rise of the Roman Empire, they started toward the beginning of the second century B.C. and actually took about 150 years to come on the scene. What's interesting is that in 168 B.C., the Romans conquered Macedonia, which was one of these four kings. So actually, Antiochus is on the scene as the very beginning of the end is spelled out for the Grecian Empire. And of course, when we relate that to the Antichrist, he comes at the very end of the times of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, when the transgressors have run their course, or when corruption is at an all-time high, a king is going to come on the scene, he's going to be insolent and skilled in intrigue. Insolent means handsome and intimidating. I saw the coin of Antiochus, he didn't look that hot. But the Antichrist is going to be the kind of guy who walks in the room and everybody notices. And not only that, but it says he will... Be skilled in intrigue. Literally, that means he will understand riddles. That doesn't mean he works crossword puzzles. That means he can solve problems. He's a guy who's going to come on the scene with solutions to the world's problems. Verse 24, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. What's that telling us? He's going to be energized by Satan. Now, that could apply to Antiochus to some degree, but that's ultimately going to apply to the Antichrist, because Revelation chapter 13, 2 says about him that the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. He will be a Satan-possessed person who will be far more powerful than Alexander the Great and far worse than Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at the end of verse 24. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will, and he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Antiochus destroyed 80,000 Jews. We know of the Antichrist in Zechariah 13.8 that he will destroy two-thirds of the Jews. Verse 25, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. Here's his tact. He will be skilled in deceit. He will be someone who comes on the scene and has people deceived into believing him. And what will they believe? Well, I think it's indicated in the rest of verse 25. It says, and he will magnify himself in his heart. One of the things he will have people believe is that he is God. Now, Antiochus attempted that. He didn't do real well at it. The Antichrist will do pretty well at it. Because in Revelation chapter 13, 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, except those whose names are written in the book of life. And then it goes on in verse 25 to say, and he will destroy many while they are ease. He will come in under the prefix of peace and then be a destroyer. That was true of Antiochus. We read earlier in 1 Maccabees 1.30, deceitfully he spoke peaceable words to them. They believed him, but suddenly he fell upon the city 
dealt it a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. He came in preaching peace when they believed him, when they bought it, then he switched coats. Same thing is true of the Antichrist. He's going to make a peace covenant with Israel. We'll find that out in the next chapter of Daniel. Halfway through the covenant, he's going to break it. Then verse 25 at the end says, he will even oppose the prince of peace, or the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. He will stand up against God, or literally here, Christ, and he will be broken without human hand. Now, that was true of Antiochus. He made himself God. How did Antiochus die? Well, Josephus tells us, and 2 Maccabees tells us, that he died from an attack of worms on his bowels. In fact, Josephus describes it this way. He says, there was an accompanying stench so bad that he couldn't even stand it. He died not by human hand. He died at the hand of a mysterious illness. That was true of Antiochus. That is also going to be true of the Antichrist in a future day because Revelation chapter 19 says that he will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's not human hands. That's the hand of God. Then verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. This vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true. Now I wonder if he didn't say that as much for us as he did for Daniel. Because I'm a little frustrated that I can't figure out how those days fit exactly into the life of Antiochus. And what he may be saying is, hang in there, they're true. Because they're not only applying to Antiochus, they are going to apply to a future day to the Antichrist because we know that his big time is going to be three and a half years. And that's pretty close to that time period. And so it may fit in there rather than specifically to Antiochus. He says, hang in there, it's true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Daniel, what I'm talking about here is down the road. It doesn't apply to you specifically. It's going to apply to the future. It's going to be in the future with Alexander and Antiochus and the Antichrist. So for the time being, I want you to keep it secret. I want you to seal it up. I want you to preserve it for those people down the road, which is us. Now, it's interesting that if you remember, last time we said in chapter 8, Daniel switched from writing in Aramaic to writing in Hebrew in chapter 8. And I think one of the reasons he did that is because of this exhortation. He's writing along in Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentiles. He gets to chapter 8 and God says, and so he starts writing in Hebrew because this was not for the Gentiles. This was for down the road. This was for us. And then we see his reaction in verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. This vision literally made Daniel sick. Why? Well, we're given some reasons here. Number one, because he was astonished by it. Number two, because he was confused by it. He said, I had no one to explain it. I understood parts of it, but I couldn't comprehend the whole. And then I think partly because he was distressed by the suffering that it talks about in the future of his people, Israel. Daniel got a little slice of God's plan for the future, and it wiped him out. 
And I can't help but think that we have the whole panorama laid out in front of us in Scripture. And some of us aren't even impacted by it. We have God's whole plan laid out for us, and a lot of us have the Bible blog. Oh, well. Daniel was astounded, and God had to say to him, Shh, I'm telling you. God's laid out for us the whole plan of, of history and the future, and he's not telling us, Shh. He's telling us, tell it. We should be sick to death also that we know that this world is doomed, and it may happen very soon. And it ought to motivate you and I to get out and tell the message, to get serious about the Word of God, and to share not only the bad news, but the good news that we have a Savior who provides salvation forever.